All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, number 28, for July 2021. Bad Science, Samuel George Morton, M.D., George Robbins Glidden, John Ernst Worrell Keeley. Cemetery is a National Historic Landmark, an arboretum, a sculpture garden, a nature preserve, and an active cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, West Laurel Hill Cemetery, located across the Schuylkill River in Balakinwood, was founded in 1869. It has a history and a population of its own. I'm Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University in Philadelphia and volunteer tour guide at Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery and volunteer podcaster. Join me for the next 90 minutes or so to learn about three people whose 19th century science is now recognized as spurious or even dangerous, but who in their day were hailed as among the greatest thinkers of the era. Dr. Samuel George Morton, a pioneer of American anthropology, father of American invertebrate paleontology, was also an almost pathologic skull collector whose measurements and conclusions were used to justify enslavement and eventually racial cleansing. George Robbins Glidden, who probably taught Americans more about ancient Egypt than anyone up to his time, but then got caught up in Morton's scientific racism and the thrill of robbing graves for their heads and mummified remains. And James Ernst Worrell Keeley, who was either a super genius that science has not caught up with more than 120 years after his death, or more likely, one of the great hucksters of the 19th century. Morton and Glidden are interred at Laurel Hill Cemetery. Keeley is a permanent resident at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. This episode is longer than usual and longer than I intended. I always intend to go about an hour. But once you hear these stories, I think you'll understand why. You might want to break it into three mini podcasts. However you listen, I guarantee you will be informed and entertained by this July 2021 edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, Bad Science. Even if we forgot about the heads, Dr. Samuel George Morton would be remembered today. As an accomplished physician and teacher, a father of American anthropology, and as the founder of American invertebrate paleontology, Morton was elected as a member of the Academy of Natural Sciences of Philadelphia, ANSP, when he was 21 years old. He earned medical degrees from the University of Pennsylvania Medical School and the University of Edinburgh. He was an accomplished geologist, a gifted illustrator. He is credited with being the first person to describe the West African pygmy hippopotamus. 
He published a 180-page medical book on pulmonary consumption. He edited the first and second editions of Macintosh's Principles of Pathology, and in 1845 authored his own anatomy textbook, Human Anatomy, Special, General, and Microscopic. But we keep coming back to the heads, nearly a thousand of them, gathered from around the world by his acolytes and friends, both legally and illegally. Morton used these heads to promote the idea that there were different species of humans occupying the planet, and that he could prove scientifically this theory of polygenesis. While Bible-fearing scientists believed that men of all races had descended from one source, Adam and Eve, in other words, monogenesis, Morton and his followers felt that neither climate nor diet could account for the differences in man, and that a creator had actually fashioned five mating pairs of humans, which produced the American, the Mongolian, the Malay, the Caucasian, and the Ethiopian races. Morton believed that each of these separately made races represented a different species of humanity. Claiming that brain size determined intelligence, Morton spent much of his career measuring the capacity of his skull collection and determined that Caucasians, with the largest brains, were the superior race, and Ethiopians, with the smallest brains, the inferior with all other races ranked in between. His results were pounced upon, first by white supremacists to justify the horrors of slavery, and eventually by the racially-based politics of Nazi Germany to justify the Holocaust. Now that is a heavy burden to place on a Philadelphia boy. Samuel George Morton was born in Philadelphia in 1799 to a Quaker mother and an Episcopalian customs clerk father, an Englishman born in Ireland, who died six months later in one of the periodic yellow fever epidemics that struck Philadelphia. Samuel was the youngest of nine brothers and sisters, of whom only he and one sister survived to adulthood. The widowed Mrs. Morton moved in with relatives in New York State and stayed until 1813, when the family moved back to Philadelphia. Although Morton was a lifelong Episcopalian, he was educated in Quaker schools. At the age of 16, he became an apprentice at a mercantile house in Philadelphia, a job he disliked intensely. When Samuel's mother died in 1817, the 18-year-old left the business world and enrolled in a private anatomical school operated by Dr. Joseph Parrish, 1779-1840, a man who had studied under Dr. Kaspar Wistar and who had attended Samuel's mother during her final illness. Parrish is interred at Friends Arch Street Meeting House Burial Ground. While at Parrish's school, Morton came under the tutelage of Dr. Richard Harlan, 1796-1842, only three years his senior, but who as a physician and natural historian had been elected to the Academy of Natural Sciences, henceforth called the Academy, at the age of 19. Harlan's 1825 book, Fauna Americana, being a description of the mammiferous animals inhabiting North America, 
was the first systematic presentation of the mammals of North America and had significant influence on Morton's later work. After coursework with Harlan at Parrish's school, Morton enrolled at the University of Pennsylvania Medical School. He earned his M.D. in 1820, the same year that Harlan arranged for him to become a member of the Academy. Later that year, he sailed to Ireland to visit an uncle, a successful English merchant who arranged for him to attend medical school at the University of Edinburgh, which had been established in 1726 during the Scottish Enlightenment, and whose history dated back to the early 16th century. While at Edinburgh, Morton became close friends with Thomas Hodgkin, 1798-1866, a devout Quaker abolitionist who later became a renowned pathologist and for whom Hodgkin's lymphoma is named. In 1821, the two friends went to Paris together for specialized training, and they learned the use of the stethoscope from its inventor, René Lenec, 1781-1826. It was during this trip to Europe that Morton was twice struck by attacks of a near-fatal illness, which purportedly involved his liver. This left him weak and sickly for the rest of his life. He frequently suffered from headaches so severe that he took to bed for days at a time. Now, perhaps because of these headaches, his doctoral thesis was a review of the known literature on the nature of pain. In his thesis, Morton noted, quote, the origin of all the varieties of character are congenital, and those differences for a greater part must be ascribed to the structure of the brain, end quote. Even at this age, he felt that brain structure was inherited and determined a person's mental attributes. He was a hereditarian. Many friends, including Harlan, were environmentalists who felt that humans were primarily shaped by their environment. Late in life, Morton continued to reject environmentalism because he found it hard to believe that, quote, chance alone had caused all the physical disparity among men, from the noblest Caucasian to the most degraded Australian and Hottentot, end quote. Morton received his second medical degree in the summer of 1823, and by 1824 he had returned to Philadelphia to establish a successful medical practice. In 1826, he married Rebecca Pearsall, 1805-1864, an Episcopalian whose Quaker grandfather, Printer Isaac Collins, 1746-1817, had published in 1791 a King James Bible that would set the standard for several decades. Samuel and Rebecca had nine children. The oldest grew up to be Brigadier General James St. Clair Morton, 1828-1864. He was killed in action at the Second Battle of Petersburg. Another son, Thomas George Morton, 1835-1903, was a successful ophthalmologist, while a third son was ordained as an Episcopalian priest. Morton became deeply involved with the Academy and served variously as recording secretary, curator, corresponding secretary, vice president, and eventually president, a role that he held for the last two years of his life. During this period, he authored various papers, many of them inconsequential, including one on an albino raccoon. But unlike most naturalists who did their own fieldwork, the sickly Morton rarely traveled. 
He researched specimens delivered to him in Philadelphia from the American frontier and all parts of the world in the extensive Academy collections, some of which I talked about in the previous podcast, The Birds and the Bees. At the time of his death in 1851, the Academy's collection included more than 13,000 books and 148,000 specimens. There is a classic daguerreotype from 1842 or 1843 that was taken inside the Academy. It shows three men gathered together. It is considered the first photograph ever of the inside of an American museum. The daguerreotype process had been introduced only three years earlier. You'll hear more about that in an upcoming podcast called Smile for the Birdie. The seated figure on the right is Morton. In the middle is a young Joseph Leidy, whose statue now greets you when you go to the academy. The person on the left is an amateur scholar named Edgar Allan Poe, who spent time at the academy doing research on mollusks. A turning point for Morton occurred in 1830, when he was preparing a lecture on the form of the skull as seen in the five races of man and could not find examples which he could privately study. He had started collecting skulls earlier in his career, and by 1825 had acquired a, quote, Mongolian from Kamchatka. His mentor, Richard Harland, had accumulated his own collection of skulls, which he offered for sale in 1838, more than 700 specimens, of which 46 were human. But it was destroyed in a fire the next year. So Morton began intensive work on his own skull collection. At some earlier time, Harlan had given several specimens to Morton. Four Celtic skulls from the catacombs of Paris, one from the battlefield at Waterloo, another of a Burmese soldier, the tattooed head of a New Zealander. As corresponding secretary for the Academy, he had contacts around the world, and skulls poured in from Asia, Africa, Europe, and the Americas. He corresponded with as many as 138 contacts, from scientific colleagues to merchants, military figures, missionaries around the world. By the time he died, Morton had amassed nearly 1,000 skulls, the largest collection of human crania in the world. Mummified heads from Egypt and Peru, thug skulls from India, crania from Mexico and Malaysia. Many contributors assumed their donation was going to the collection of the Academy and not to a single individual. Each of the skulls was described in detail. Example, skull number 14 was, quote, the celebrated Mrs. Fortescue, who was in succession seduced, thrown upon the town, and abandoned, unquote, in Philadelphia. It is even possible she was one of his patients when he was working at the Philadelphia Almshouse. Skull number 539 was from a man, quote, who was executed for piracy and murder at Philadelphia, May 19, 1837, unquote. The most notorious specimen was probably skull number 59, a British-Australian prisoner named Alexander Pierce, who was hanged for murder and then killing and devouring his fellow inmates. Up to one-third of Morton's collection was of Native American skulls. 
Academy founder and first president Gerard Troost sent Indian skulls from Tennessee. Second president William McClure sent skulls from Mexico. John James Audubon sent Morton at least one Indian skull and the remains of four Mexican soldiers killed at the Battle of San Jacinto, the decisive battle of the Texas Revolution in 1836. 1856 U.S. presidential aspirant John Fremont sent Morton several Indian skulls from California. It was obvious that many American explorers had absolutely no qualms about disturbing the burial sites of Native Americans, especially after the Indian Removal Act of 1830. One collector in the South bragged of his personal collection of about 200 crania, including, quote, Choctaw, Cree, Alabama, Uchi, Hitchiti, Cherokee, Chiacasins, Stiakapaw, Monumental, and Natchez Indians, unquote. Another collector and Morton acolyte George Glidden sent him dozens of skulls from Egypt, which served as the basis for his 1844 group Crania Egyptica, or Observations on Egyptian Ethnography, derived from anatomy, history, and the monuments. You'll hear a lot more about Glidden in part two of this podcast. In 1834, Morton began work on his masterpiece, a lavishly illustrated tome entitled Crania Americana, or a comparative view of the skulls of various aboriginal nations of North and South America. In those pre-Darwin days, Morton explained that his studies of these skulls had convinced him as to the correctness of the work of German anatomist Johann Friedrich Blumenbach, 1752 to 1840, and that there were indeed five distinct races of humans. He described them thusly. Caucasians. This race is distinguished for the facility with which it attains the highest intellectual endowments. Mongolians. In their intellectual character, the Mongolians are ingenious, imitative, and highly susceptible of cultivation. The Malay race. This race is active and ingenious, and possesses all the habits of migratory, predaceous, and maritime people. The Americans, in their mental character, the Americans are averse to cultivation and slow in acquiring knowledge, restless, revengeful, and fond of war, and wholly destitute of maritime adventure. The Ethiopians, in disposition, the Negro is joyous, flexible, and indolent. While the many nations which compose this race present singular diversity of intellectual character, of which the far extreme is the lowest grade of humanity. Now, while Morton accepted the basic principles of phrenology, that the brain is the organ of the mind, and that its different parts perform different functions, he rejected the idea that the shapes of individual skulls were considered accurate indicators of personality. An 1824 book titled Elements of Phrenology by Scottish lawyer and phrenologist George Combe, 1788-1858, was slowly gaining popularity. It is said to be the third best-selling book of the 19th century in the United States, after the Bible and Uncle Tom's Cabin. Morton's Crania Americana was and is a gorgeous book. See for yourself. 
Put the title into the Google image and marvel at your results. But it is deceptive to see these illustrations electronically, as that gives no hint to the enormity of life-size illustrations of 69 skulls on its folio-sized pages. There is an eight-and-a-half-minute movie on YouTube that gets close to letting you see its magnificence. Crania Americana had a first printing of 500 copies. It cost Morton $2,175 to print. That's roughly $50,000 today. The lithographs were done by his wife's cousin, John Collins, 1814 to 1902. He was a successful Philadelphia printer. But apparently the work of handling human skulls affected Collins on a personal level, since when his work was finished on the book, he sold his lithography business and began life anew in another profession. Crania Americana sold very slowly. It cost $20. That was equivalent to two months' wages for a working man. A 2021 equivalent would be to pay more than $500 for a book. And it hit the market in 1839, as the country was struggling through its worst depression of the early 19th century. Attempts at sales in Europe were also limited when the first shipment of 40 volumes headed for London was lost when the brig Palmer sank in Boston Harbor in January of 1840. Now on the brink of financial ruin, Morton's fortunes changed in the summer of 1840 when his uncle James, who had financed his schooling at Edinburgh, came through again. He died and left Samuel more than enough money to cover his debts. Morton did not present his argument about inherent racial differences as a defense of slavery. In his private journal, he cursed the barbarity of that strange institution. He included very few examples of Ethiopian skulls in the book. But the conclusions he reached were interpreted as a justification for slavery by people looking for such a defense. Morton's book has been called by some scholars, quote, the most important book in the history of scientific racism, end quote. At his death, his obituary in the Charleston Medical Journal of South Carolina hailed Morton for his research. We can only say that we of the South should consider him as our benefactor for aiding most materially in giving to the Negro his true position as an inferior race. After the publication of Crania Americana and later Crania Egyptica, Morton continued his paleontological and anthropological studies, but his health limited his career. In late 1848, he was attacked with a severe pleurisy and pericarditis. The lung damage was so bad that his left hemithorax grew smaller and his left shoulder slumped lower and lower. He had also developed a very loud heart murmur. His activities became fewer and fewer, but he continued to see patients and teach medical students as long as he could. He was elected president of the academy on Christmas Day, 1849. In May of 1850, his 18-year-old son, George, died, and Samuel took the blow hard. A year later, Morton complained of a headache, followed by numbness in his legs and a pain down his back. 
After lingering for several days, he died at home on 15 May 1851, one year and one day after the death of his beloved son, George. It was a Thursday morning. Martin's friends were curious. What had killed the great man? After discussion with Rebecca Morton, six of Morton's doctor friends slid his body from the deathbed onto a dissection table and performed an autopsy. When they peeled back the scalp and cut into the skull, they found the blood clots and burst blood vessels that led to his death. They did note that the, quote, brain was large and symmetrical. His heart was large and flabby, no surprise, as he had assuredly developed severe cardiomegaly and cardiomyopathy from whatever valvular disease he had developed. But his liver looked normal. His left lung was shriveled. No one removed his head and prepared it for study and display. After completing the dissection, his friends relinquished the body to his wife for preparation and burial. Morton's friends gathered $4,000, that's roughly $135,000 today, and purchased his American Golgotha collection of crania, which they donated to the Academy. By 1872, the collection had grown to 1,225 human crania, which was for many years on display at the Academy and open to visitors free of charge on Tuesdays and Saturdays. In 1892, the Academy sent 44 of the Native American heads to Spain for the 400th anniversary of Columbus's discovery of the New World. The Academy was just one of many so-called bone rooms that had sprung up around the country, including the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia. In 1966, the Morton Collection was transferred to the University of Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology, commonly called the Penn Museum, where it resides to this day, but is no longer on public display. I have neither the time nor the credentials to talk about how Morton's work was challenged as inaccurate and biased by celebrity paleontologist, evolutionary biologist, and science historian Stephen J. Gould. In 1977, Gould examined Morton's data, not the original skulls, and reported his results in his 1980 book, The Mismeasure of Man. Careful evaluation of Morton's original data has since been confirmed by modern anthropologists who found many errors in Gould's assumptions. Others have sprung to Gould's defense. He died of lung cancer in 2002. But even Morton's harshest 21st century critics claim, quote, no sign of fraud or conscious manipulation. In other words, his measurements were accurate. It was his science that was junk. He focused on a subject race, but disregarded other factors such as age, sex, health, nutrition, body size, all of which could influence cranium size. And since he willingly accepted skulls from donors near and far, he often just took their word for a specimen's origin without any further due diligence. Regardless of the controversy associated with his findings on racial differences, Morton did develop methods of cranial measurement that are still used today. More than a dozen of Morton's skulls are now known to be anonymous black Philadelphians. It is uncertain how many were enslaved people, as there was a large free black population in Philadelphia. 
The remains were likely dug up from the burial grounds used by the Philadelphia Almshouse, later Philadelphia General Hospital. That's where Morton had studied and worked. From 1832 to 1860, there was a potter's field where Franklin Field now stands. It is entirely possible that the skulls of black Philadelphians in the Morton collection have a corresponding body buried across the street. The Penn Medicine and the Afterlives of Slavery Project was established in 2018. They are making determinations about repatriation, not just for Philadelphia enslaved people, but for more than 40 skulls from enslaved people in Cuba. Much has been reported in Philadelphia newspapers for the last few months. I'm recording this in June of 2021. In 1990, the United States Congress passed the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, NAGPRA. Since then, American museums have been trying to return Native American remains to their appropriate tribes. It is estimated there are at least 500,000 Native American remains in U.S. museums and another half million in other museums around the world. There is a repatriation page with inventory at the Penn.Museum website. Dr. Samuel George Morton was laid to rest at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section G, on 18 May 1851, three days after his death. There's a beautiful 12-foot-tall monument over his grave, a chest-high block of marble topped by a canopy held up by four pillars. Yet there's nothing on display at this structure, obviously meant to exhibit something. After you contemplate this mystery for a few seconds, the irony strikes you. You were supposed to be looking at a bust of Dr. Samuel George Morton. Instead, his head is missing. If you were to take equal parts Samuel G. Morton and P.T. Barnum, you would end up with someone who looked and talked and acted a lot like George Robbins Glidden, a man forever linked with educating Americans about Egypt and its culture. During the Victorian era, from the 1830s to the 1900s, improvements in communication and travel led to the rise of a circuit of lecture halls that flourished across the United States known as the Lyceum Movement, educational and entertaining talks given by experts. At its peak in Antebellum America, up to a million people a week regularly attended talks in local venues where they were captivated by the words of writers and scientists and public figures like Frederick Douglass, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Mark Twain. Authors Charles Dickens and Herman Melville were popular Lyceum speakers, as was composer Stephen Foster. When he was a young man, Abraham Lincoln gave a speech to a Lyceum in Springfield, Illinois. This Lyceum movement was a major intellectual and cultural force during this nation-building period. And for many speakers, a series of Lyceum lectures would exceed their yearly salary as teachers or writers. 19th century audiences were fascinated by information from around the globe and tried to gain an understanding of exotic ways of life. 
Americans were coming to realize that they were part of a global community and that knowledge of other cultures was essential. Many American thinkers in the second quarter of the 19th century thought that, quote, transcending the national was to be the culmination of nationhood, end quote. One of the stars of the Lyceum movement was British-born Egyptologist George Glidden. For many years, he took advantage of the Egyptomania that gripped America and earned a reputation as an excellent teacher and showman. During its birth, the United States had looked primarily to Greece and Rome as their models for political ideals, civic culture, and architectural inspiration. And the grand tour taken by many Americans was usually in Europe. It rarely included the Middle East. But Egyptian influence had snuck into the thinking of some founders. Think of the reverse side of the Great Seal, approved by Congress in 1782 and designed by Laurel Hill resident Charles Thompson. It depicts the eye of providence on top of an incomplete pyramid with 13 levels, one for each original state. In 1809, after Napoleon's disastrous occupation of Egypt, scientists and artists who accompanied him published a comprehensive work called The Description of Egypt. Many U.S. libraries purchased the 23 heavily illustrated volumes. Philadelphia cabinetmaker Ephraim Haynes, buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery in Section G, crafted Egyptian-style furniture for merchant Stephen Girard. Architect Benjamin Henry Latrobe, who's buried in New Orleans, designed an Egyptian room and furniture for another Philadelphian, William Walm, who's buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section N. Walm's furniture is on display at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. By 1842, Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge had a gateway modeled after an Egyptian temple. Prisoners incarcerated in the New Jersey State Penitentiary served their sentences in a neo-Egyptian fortress. And then, of course, there was the Washington Monument, a massive Egyptian obelisk. Americans referred to the Mississippi River as the American Nile, and new settlements like Memphis, Tennessee, and in the Little Egypt area of southern Illinois, the villages of Karnak, Thebes, and Cairo, which the locals called Cairo. Cairo was designed by Philadelphia architect William Strickland, whose wife Rachel is buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section D. Egyptian culture and history may have been fascinating, but Egyptian mummies were the real crowd-pleaser. American painter Benjamin West had sent a mummy's hand to the Library Company of Philadelphia in 1767. In 1824, Philadelphian Rubens Peel exhibited the mummy at his Baltimore Museum and made a substantial profit. Then he staged a partial unwrapping of two mummies in his New York Museum in 1826. Since there was both money and showmanship involved, P.T. Barnum soon got into the act and displayed mummies at his American museum just down the street. Plays such as Thomas Dartmouth Rice's Virginie Mummy were performed all over the country. Laurel Hill Cemetery barely escaped Egyptomania by declining an opportunity to build a pyramid just inside the gate to celebrate Philadelphia's scientific worthies, including David Rittenhouse, Thomas Godfrey, Alexander Wilson, and Thomas Say.
The proposal came from cemetery co-founder Frederick Brown, buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section 9, along with physicians Charles D. Meggs, Section I, and Richard Harlan. The design was modeled on the 37-meter-tall tomb of Caius Cestius in Rome's Protestant Cemetery. Had the plan succeeded, you would be greeted today by a 50-plus-foot pyramid on your right after passing through the gatehouse entrance. There is a rendering of the plan in the cemetery archive. Obviously, the plan failed, and the pyramid was never built. But by 1840, an Egypt-mad America was salivating for a presentation like that about to be presented by George Robbins Glidden. Glidden, an Englishman born in 1809, joined his businessman father in Alexandria, Egypt in 1818 and stayed for the next 23 years. He is described by contemporaries as a good-natured man who was exceptionally gregarious and had a special magnetism that could draw and hold audiences. In other words, he was a salesman, a showman. He and his father cultivated ties to the United States and were given honorary posts as unsalaried consul and vice-consul at Alexandria and Cairo, mostly to assist the occasional American tourist looking for porters and guides. In 1837, Muhammad Ali, Egypt's modernizing viceroy, sent Glidden to the United States to buy machines to process the cotton, rice, and sugar crops that he had introduced. Glidden became enamored with the 60-year-old republic and immediately planned a return as soon as possible. Philadelphia skull collector Dr. Samuel Morton heard about Glidden and wrote asking him to procure some crania for his ongoing project. He suggested 25 or 30 skulls. Ancient Egypt was about as close as Morton could get to the origins of man, and there were thousands of mummified bodies in and around Cairo. At one point, Glidden gave his estimate that Egypt's mummy count was close to 500 million. In the spring of 1839, the year that Morton published Crania Americana, Glidden wrote to Morton that he had somehow managed to gather 93 skulls in my house, 93 relics of humanity, grinning horribly their ghastly smiles out of cupboards, boxes, and shelves, to the horror of the only servant. At that time, tomb robbers were a common sight in Egypt, squatting in the dust, brazenly hawking skulls, bones, and whole mummies. In addition to skulls for Morton, Glidden bought several dozen mummies and other artifacts for himself. In July 1840, George Glidden was terminated as American consul to Cairo as there was a general shutting down of American consular offices throughout the Ottoman Empire. He headed back to London, where he developed a plan for an overland route to India. He was not called upon to participate in that venture. He began studying in England and the continent under the great Egyptologists of the day. 
While in London, he lived at a notorious old house in Queen's Road, Bayswater, that served as a, quote, conjugal experiment station, end quote. In other words, a commune which titillated proper London. With him lived his brother John and his wife, his sisters Catherine and Anastasia and their husbands, and a scattering of female cousins, one of whom he eventually married. In 1842, he sailed to the United States for a second time. He decided his future lay in becoming a specialist on Egypt and giving lectures at lyceums across America. He was not a trained scientist, but he had studied under some. He was described as a name-dropper, a sponger, a braggart, pretender, and scatologist. But he was also courageous, generous, warm-hearted, and loyal. His personality swung wildly between boundless joy and utter despair. He did not enter this new adventure with his usual bluster and self-assurance. He was afraid of being a failure at giving public lectures on such a complicated subject. He sought to educate himself further using what limited reference materials were then available in America. He managed to convince a New York merchant whom he had met during his time in Egypt to purchase two European volumes of Egyptian research, the first copies of these titles seen in the United States. Glidden arranged for a series of lectures in Boston. He made enlargements of images from his borrowed books. He gathered artifacts. He transported his show and personal effects from New York. It was an expensive project, and Boston newspapers gave him mixed reviews. He delivered a total of 13 lectures in the city, usually at 25 cents a head, and thoroughly enjoyed the social scene, but realized he had not made enough money to cover his expenses, so he decided to publish his lectures. The booklet, entitled Ancient Egypt, became a sensation. It sold more than 24,000 copies. It made him, quote, the first writer on ancient Egypt in the USA, end quote. Present-day Egyptologists still say that he did more for the advancement of ancient Egyptian scholarship in the United States than any other single person to that time. Glidden continued his lectures in New York and Philadelphia, where he finally met Samuel Morton, who in 1844 had used the skulls provided by Glidden to publish a follow-up to his masterpiece, Crania Americana. It was called Crania Egyptica, or Observations on Egyptian Ethnography Derived from the History of the Monuments, end quote. It was dedicated to George Glidden. Glidden was quickly taken up by the Morton School of Ethnography. He helped Morton determine that the ruling class of Egyptians was definitely white, while the servant class at ancient times, as in 1840, was black. In other words, Glidden and Morton, quote, proved that early Egyptian rulers were not Africans. Glidden's assertions were part of the contemporary argument that used ancient Egyptians as proof of racial superiority. Egyptians must have been white because they were civilized, intelligent, and according to Glidden, physically attractive. When many of the mummies he unwrapped proved to literally be black, he brushed the finding away by explaining the Egyptian method of preservation that involved dipping the dead in bitumen. He totally ignored the fact 
that early Egyptians called their own country Kemet, which translates as Land of the Black. While back in London in April of 1846, George Glidden, age 37, married his 39-year-old cousin, Anne Glidden, artist and illustrator. They had a son, Charles Charlie Americus Taharul Quaharite Glidden in 1847, who apparently inherited his mother's artistic abilities, but had multiple birth defects, including club feet and spinal abnormalities. Charlie died at age 25 of complications from his birth defects. Glidden made his third American tour later in 1846. He lectured in Brooklyn and New York City before heading back to England in August 1848. There he busied himself at the British Museum and published again, this time Odia Egyptica, a book related to his most recent lectures and a handbook to the Nile, a booklet to serve as a handout for the new set of lectures that he was developing. By the time he set sail to America for the fourth time in 1849, it was estimated that more than 100,000 people had heard him speak, most paying 25 cents each for the privilege. This time, he upped his game. He brought a 900-foot moving panorama of the Nile, the handbook, a load of mummies, and other Egyptian antiquities. The panorama was mounted on two huge cylinders, which was unwound from top to bottom and backlit like a lantern slide. Glidden stood beside it to give the presentation. He opened at the Chinese Theater in New York just before the Christmas season of 1849 and ran until the second week of February 1850. Next stop was the Chinese Museum in Philadelphia, a venue at 9th and George, now Sansom Street, that had displayed a huge collection of Chinese art and artifacts until 1843. That exhibit, entitled 10,000 Chinese Things, had been owned by Laurel Hill Cemetery co-founder Nathan Dunn, who died in 1844 and is interred in Section G, Lots 107 and 109. The highlight of Glidden's tour was to be June in Boston at Tremont Temple. He heavily advertised that he was going to unwrap the mummy of the daughter of an Egyptian priest, a rarity whose value he estimated at $1,500. That's more than $50,000 in 21st century currency. The mummy, according to Mr. Glidden, lived between the 12th and 15th centuries B.C., that is, within a hundred years of Moses. The New York Post of May 13, 1850, even suggests that she and Moses may have known each other. The unwrapping was expected to reveal the funeral ring, the papyri containing the hieroglyphical Book of the Dead, and probably some other surprises. He sold 300 subscriptions at $5 each. In contemporary terms, that would be nearly $175 per subscription for the three-day show. Each subscription entitled the owner to four tickets, and a crowd of 1,500 gathered excitedly, including the elite of Boston, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Louis Agassiz, and many others. He planned daily lectures along with the unwrapping. He planned to out Barnum Barnum. The unwrapping began at noon on Monday, June 10th. 
Glidden was in top form. He even hired a pianist to play what was described as vaguely oriental music. Despite his lack of formal training or scientific credentials, he had crafted his speaking style to sound like a professor, using a polysyllabic vocabulary sprinkled with references to scholarship in Hebrew, Greek, Latin, and French. He looked like a preacher, dressed in black, standing between two tables, one piled high with scholarly books, the other with pots and scarabs he had smuggled out of Egypt. He swept his audience into a region where Bible scenes came alive. Noah's son Ham brought his family into Egypt's desert. Joseph whispered advice to the Pharaoh. Baby Moses squirmed in the bulrushes. He gave first-hand description of the Sphinx, the Pyramids of Giza, and the Colossi of Memnon, of crocodiles, hippos, pelicans, vultures, ostriches, water buffaloes, and even the world's largest sycamore tree that preferred wood for a mummy's coffin. The Boston Press had somehow morphed his daughter of a high priest into an Egyptian priestess and eventually an Egyptian princess. The mummy, still in her coffin, was placed upright in front of the audience, and Glidden's aide slowly sawed it open as he lectured on the Book of the Dead. He talked about the embalming process and showed examples of several different mummified animals, cats, hawks, jackals, serpents, ibises, fish, crocodiles, a calf from Memphis, a ram from Thebes. At last, the coffin was opened and the priestess taken out and placed on a revolving pedestal for all to see. Glidden the showman ended the first session here. The second session on Wednesday afternoon continued the tease. Glidden's lecture showed the connections between biblical and pharaonic history. He addressed the timing of the flood and the subsequent repopulation of the earth. With many women in his audience, he made sure to emphasize that the female sex in Egypt was honored, civilized, educated, and, quote, as free as among ourselves. Let us render to the ancient Egyptians the proud honor of being the first nation who appreciated the moral capabilities, social virtues, intellectual attributes, and civil rights of women. End quote. There was more scrolling of the panorama of the Nile, more snipping of the wrapping linens. Souvenir fragments were given to attendees. As predicted, the unrolling revealed a papyrus, or book of the dead, and a scarabaeus, or winged beetle. The audience was thus primed for the third climactic day. The final unpacking took place on Friday. He continued to tease the crowd. He held up a mummified human foot from one of his tables. The gentle owner of this exquisite foot danced in girlish gladness to the sounds of harps which were struck long ere David sang. He then displayed a shriveled hand. Ask this scorched, though gilded hand, whose will its delicate fingers obeyed at a date when the Hebrews possessed no alphabet, when the Pentateuch was yet unwritten. As he slowly finished revealing the princess, the audience held its breath as the last layer was removed, only to reveal a rather generous-sized, well-preserved penis. 
Several of the women present were rather appalled. Glidden immediately blamed the long-ago coffin-maker for an incorrect hieroglyph indicating who was interred therein. But the nation's newspapers picked up on it, and Glidden became a bit of a laughing-stock. The Boston Post said that one of Mr. Glidden's patrons declared that, quote, Although the mummy turned out to be a man, he still considered it to be a damsel. End quote. Word even reached London, where the Morning Chronicle suggested that the body embalmed was not an Egyptian at all, but the mortal remains of a noble Roman who accompanied Mark Anthony into Egypt and who was named Spurius Mummius. Glidden's reputation was now sullied. Edgar Allan Poe, who had died just a few months earlier, had indirectly predicted this would be Glidden's end in his 1845 short story, Some Words with a Mummy, published in American Review. The ancient Egyptian mummy Alamastachio was inadvertently brought back to life with electrical charges following the earlier work of Galvani. Poe even included a character named George Glidden, who translated the hieroglyphs for the unfortunate experimenters. Glidden moved on to more lectures and unwrappings on a tour from Philadelphia down to New Orleans. There were no more surprise endings, but his audiences dwindled. Many of his mummies found permanent homes. The head of the Philadelphia mummy, Gatmuk Asank, ended up in Samuel Morton's collection. In New Orleans, Hefer Atetu, beautiful youth, and Gatthothi Ankh stayed at what is now Tulane University, along with three coffins and some other antiquities. Sometime in the mid-20th century, they went into storage under the bleachers of Tulane Stadium, also known as the Sugar Bowl, and they were promptly forgotten. Now, despite having lousy seats, Heffer and Gott attended every Tulane home game from 1955 to 1974. They were present at dozens of New Orleans Saints home games and Super Bowls 4, 6, and 9, all waged on Tulane turf before the Superdome opened in 1975. The Nola mummies remain residents of Tulane's Middle American Research Institute. After this final tour, Glidden retired his skulls, mummies, and panorama and settled into Mobile, Alabama, where he took up his pen to collaborate with the racist ethnographer Josiah Clark Knott. They produced Types of Mankind, elaborating on Morton's theories of polygenesis and racial hierarchies. It was circulated by subscription by Lippincott and Grambo of Philadelphia in 1854. Publisher Joshua Ballinger Lippincott, buried in Section 9 of Laurel Hill Cemetery, paid for his trip back to England and Europe. By 1870, Types of Mankind had gone through ten editions. It is still in print. In 1857, Glidden was back in Philadelphia, his favorite U.S. city, and had completely abandoned Egyptology. His next publication was Indigenous Races of the Earth, and it promoted Morton's theory of polygenesis. That same year, through the good graces of his longtime friend and fellow archaeologist E.G. Squire, he took a post as deputy agent of the Honduras Interoceanic Railroad Company. 
an agency staffed by men who built the Pennsylvania Railroad. Their plan in pre-Panama Canal days was to build a railroad across the isthmus and cut the time of ocean travel from the U.S. East Coast to the West Coast and vice versa. By the way, not a single mile of track was ever laid for that project. George Glidden arrived in Honduras in April 1857. He brought along his younger brother, Henry, to serve as secretary. He almost immediately contracted fever, probably yellow fever, and took a leave to recover, but he did not make it. On 16 November 1857, George Robbins Glidden, age 48, died in Panama of, quote, pulmonary paralysis, that is, respiratory arrest, which his superior, Henry Shelton Stanford, blamed on, quote, his own stubbornness and self-willed obstinance, which led him to doctor himself, to take overdoses of laudanum and opium unknown to his physician, end quote. He was buried in the Old American Cemetery in Panama, now known as the Corazal American Cemetery and Memorial. When word reached the United States, Dr. James A. Meggs announced Glidden's death to the Academy of Natural Sciences. Mrs. Glidden packed her few belongings, gathered up her husband's papers, and returned to London. It is safe to say that among many scientists, George Glidden was mourned with reluctance. A few years later, Glidden's remains were taken from the cemetery in Panama and shipped to Laurel Hill Cemetery in Philadelphia by his good friend Ephraim George Squire, with the understanding that Glidden's publisher, J.B. Lippincott, had promised to pay for a burial plot. Eh, from here, the records get a little fuzzy. Lippincott denied having ever made such a promise. Glidden's remains were kept in a receiving vault while things were sorted out, and eventually the cemetery agreed to bury him, literally on a walkway in front of Section G, Plot 98, on one of the terraces leading down to the river. In other words, he was interred in an area that would not have been sold for profit. The Philadelphia Inquirer described it thusly on 17 November 1863, quote, the remains of the late George R. Glidden, the well-known author and lecturer upon Egyptian subjects, having been lately removed from Panama, were on Saturday last deposited in their final resting place at Laurel Hill, where, through the kindness of the managers of that cemetery and other friends of the deceased, an elegant and appropriate mural tablet has been erected to commemorate his memory." End quote. It appears that in death... Just as in life, George Glidden was a freeloader. And, as Antony said at the oration of Caesar, the evil that men do lives after them. The good is often turred with their bones. Nineteenth-century Philadelphia was no stranger to so-called perpetual motion machines. In 1812, a man named Charles Redheffer, who may or may not have been born in Germantown, claimed that he had invented one, and he exhibited it in a house near the Schuylkill River on the outskirts of the city at that time. He charged admission for people to view it, and the machine caused a sensation. Red Heifer lobbied the city for funds to build a larger version. 
In January 1813, eight city commissioners visited Red Heifer to inspect his machine, but he made them do it through a barred window. Red Heifer said that he was concerned that anyone going near the machine might damage it. One of the inspectors, Nathan Sellers, brought his son Coleman, whom we briefly met in an earlier podcast, The Birds and the Bees. He was the husband of artist and ornithologist Sophonisba Anguissola Peel, daughter of painter Charles Wilson Peel. Coleman and Sophonisba are buried at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. Coleman noticed something odd about the gears. They were worn on the wrong side. The machine was said to be powering a separate device through a series of gears and weights, but Coleman's observations suggested that the device was in fact powering the machine. Nathan Sellers was convinced the machine was a hoax, so he hired local watchmaker and engineer Isaiah Lukens to build a similar machine, only using a hidden clockwork motor as a power source. You will hear more about Lukens, who is buried at Laurel Hill in Section D, in a future podcast entitled Tick-Tock, Clocks and Watches. When Red Heifer saw that the game was up, he moved to New York City, where his reputation had not preceded him. He changed his machine somewhat so that it could not be detected as easily, and again, he exhibited it. When mechanical engineer Robert Fulton went to see the machine, he noticed that the machine was unsteady, as if someone was driving it manually and irregularly with a crank, and that the sound was uneven. He announced the machine was a fraud, and he challenged Red Heifer, saying he would expose the secret power source. Fulton removed some boards from the wall alongside the machine, and there was a catgut cord that led to the upper floor. Upstairs, he found an old man who was turning a hand crank with one hand and eating a crust of bread with the other. Spectators realized they had been duped, and they destroyed the machine. Red Heifer fled the city and essentially disappeared from history. Now, by the time that John Ernst Warrell Keeley came along 60 years later, the first and second laws of thermodynamics had been developed, showing the impossibility of perpetual motion. The first law states that in a closed system, energy can never be created or destroyed, so the total energy of a closed system remains constant. In other words, you can't get something for nothing. The second law states that energy can be lost or dissipated, becoming unavailable for work. In other words, entropy. You can't even break even. But Keeley ignored those laws and made up his own. And then he went on a 25-plus year run in promoting and selling his newly discovered force of potentially infinite energy, which he never once called perpetual motion. Keeley was born in Philadelphia in 1837, according to Wikipedia, or maybe it was 1827. To add to the confusion, his death certificate said he was 62 when he died, which would have made his birth year either 1836 or possibly 1835. He was orphaned before he was 10. He attended school for two or three years, but then he dropped out and he learned the carpenter's trade. 
He also worked as an upholsterer, a plumber, a mason. For a while, he worked at a drugstore, and then he became a locomotive engineer on the Pennsylvania Railroad. He was excited by reports of an Indian uprising out west, and he joined the army. But he was wounded in a battle by an arrow and spent time recovering in a hospital. When he returned to Philadelphia in the mid-1850s, he worked as a varnisher under Bennett C. Wilson, in addition to being a flutist with an orchestra. There's also evidence that he worked as a circus performer, something to do with catching cannonballs. And he was a sleight-of-hand artist with cards, as well as a carnival barker. But apparently, all this time, he was thinking about something he had discovered back before his 10th birthday, acoustic physics. My whole organism seemed attuned as if it were a harp of a thousand strings set for the reception of all the conditions associated with sound force as a controlling medium, a positive and negative. This led him to investigate what he called the chord of the mass of any material body and then use the application of this discovery to the production of vibrations at will. Utilizing the energy of this cord produces disintegration, and this disintegration is capable of being converted into energy. Now, after his adventures in the Indian Wars, when he returned to the relative safety of Philadelphia, he befriended mechanics and professors, and he acquired smatterings of the fundamentals of both science and machinery. His first so-called motor in the mid-1850s was based on a resonator or intensifier consisting of a shingle screwed to two hollow wooden tubes which he said could record vibrations by means of a steel bar studded with 300 pins of various lengths. This led to a sympathetic flow of energy which could be captured to do work. In 1856, he was experimenting with a toy engine in his home on 5th Street, five or six doors above Queen Street. He was somewhere between 19 and 29 years old. The first incarnation of the Keeley Globe motor around 1871 was a hollow metal sphere. It was about 8 inches in diameter, and he could make it spin rapidly on a horizontal axis. Keeley was not totally clear in explaining how the motor worked. His basic premise was that atoms in water are in constant vibration. So all you have to do is harness the random vibrations of the atoms within the water and you can produce unlimited energy. When you channel the atoms to vibrate in unison, their etheric force can run any motor of any size. And since water covers most of the earth, the fuel for his machine was cheap and readily available. All of mankind would benefit. It was in 1872 that Keeley, while experimenting while using only air, water, and sound vibrations, allegedly made his discovery of the energy that he called the force. He then imprisoned the ether and launched experiments with it. 
At this time, most physicists believed, incorrectly, that all of space was filled with a medium called the luminiferous ether, a hypothetical substance which was thought necessary for the transmission of electromagnetic waves and the propagation of light, both of which were believed impossible in empty space. Between 1871 and 1875, he constructed six different devices to assist in his Keeley motor. The independent flywheel, the globe motor, the dissipating engine, the multiplicator, the automatic water lift, and the hydropneumatic pulsating vacuo engine. Although he demonstrated all of these at one time or another, especially the globe motor, he never patented any of them. In 1874, Keeley moved to 1420 North 20th Street above Ridge Avenue. There he established his workshop and his laboratory, and there he would design, develop, and demonstrate his inventions. It was somewhere around this time that he met the well-known Philadelphia patent attorney, Charles B. Collier, who became enamored with this work and essentially became his business partner, convincing potential investors of the value of Keeley's work. On 10 November 1874, Keeley demonstrated the first full-scale version of his miracle etheric generator, later to be called a vibratory generator. The motor obtained its power from, quote, intermolecular vibrations of ether. This allowed him to create a series of progressive machines, which he had finally named the hydropneumatic pulsating vacuo motor engine, in order to quadruple negative harmonics. In one demonstration, using only air from his lungs and water from a tap, he showed his audience how his motor device could generate a power of 1430 PSI and rotate a small engine at 400 RPM. The force caused no noise, no steam, and no apparent ash or residue. Now, to build one of these generators, he said it required six tuning forks, although five would probably be sufficient, a compound vitalizing medium, a vibratory elliptic, a positive wave plate, a spirophone box, along with several positive and negative tubes, and as many sets of triple vibratories as were necessary for transmitting sympathies. Now, Keeley also suggested he wanted to add a compound deodorized vaporized shaft to the generator to enlarge the antimonian cylinder of the engine by prolonging it at the end and inserting in its negative casing a monophysite tube studded with 36 Sibelian holes and terminating in a galvanic manicuan chamber. With these improvements, he would be able to secure 700 additional revolutions per minute and to reduce the supply of water needed in the generator to five-sixths of a pint. Bankers, railroad men, and other industrialists said, sign me up, and Keeley easily raised capital of $100,000 for his Keeley Motor Company, formed by Collier and Keeley in 1874. When the bylaws of the Keeley Motor Company were published a year later, the title page proudly announced that it had amassed a capital of $1 million in 20,000 shares, each share 
$50. The company would eventually have a capital of $5 million. That is equivalent to $150 million today. In 1875, he said that in six months, he would be able to run a train of 30 cars from Philadelphia to New York at a rate of a mile a minute using one small engine. I will draw the power out of as much water as you could hold in the palm of your hand. A bucket of water contains enough of this vapor to produce a power sufficient to move the world out of its course. He also said that he could send a large ship across the Atlantic in 48 hours using less than a pint of water as fuel. But he encountered some pushback from the magazine Scientific American, which published a scathing article calling Keeley and Collier nothing more than frauds whose chief purpose appears to be the wriggling of money out of silly people. Keeley and Collier both wrote long explanatory notes explaining their machines and their potential for the good of mankind. Keeley tried to put into words what he was working on. All operations of nature have for their sensitizing centers of introductory actions triple vacuum evolutions. These evolutions are centered in what I call atomic triple revolutions, highly radiophonic and thoroughly independent of all outside sources in their spheres of action. In fact, no conceivable power, however great, can break up their independent centers. So infinitely minute are they in their position that within a circle that would enclose the smallest grain of sand, hundreds of billions of them perform to an infinite mathematical precision, their continuous revolution of inconceivable velocity. The different conditions include the change of the mediums for disturbing equilibrium under different mediums for intensifying vibration as associated with them progressively from the molecular to the interetheric. First, percussion. Second, undulation. Third, vibratory undulations. Fourth, vibratory percussion. Fifth, water and air. Sixth, air alone. If you are shaking your head and thinking about going back to listen to that again, don't even bother. It won't make sense the second time either. And to add to the confusion, Keeley's explanations changed from week to week. At first he said that his motor ran on cold vapor, a mysterious sort of unheated steam that he produced through the disintegration of water. Later he claimed to have captured the ether that mysterious nothing that was once held to be everywhere and in everything. He talked of disintegrators and vaporic force and globular transmission and the law of concordant assimilative harmony. Keeley spoke in what the Chicago Tribune called a volapuk intelligible only to Keeley and the motor. Volapuk was a 19th century artificial language. It was based mostly in English, but it had some root words in German, French, and Latin. The stock of the Keeley Motor Company rose considerably, about 600%, and stockholders pleaded with Keeley, patent your devices. He refused. This caused some stockholders to sell their stock and leave, and the stock gradually declined. 
More devices followed with spheres, tubes, and rubber hoses, air pumps, vapor valves, condensing apparatuses, and pressure gauges. In 1878, Keeley was still busy constructing strange-looking devices, conducting extraordinary experiments, and giving the occasional demonstration, but not procuring anything of commercial value or ready use, and still no patent secured. He offered fellow inventor Thomas Edison an opportunity to visit his workshop. Edison's reply was succinct. Collier just visited me. Keeley only willing to show pressure. I will not go until he works an engine. That day never came, and the two men never met. By 1879, the Keeley Motor Company was on the verge of bankruptcy. Keeley agreed to a scheme that the company proposed. He assigned the rights to two of his inventions, the automatic water lift and the vapor gun, to the Keeley Motor Company. Stock was increased from 20,000 to 100,000 shares. It was a mess, and Keeley's failure seemed almost imminent. Then in March of 1880, Keeley announced he would complete his engine in a short period of time. He would demonstrate an entire new line of exotic devices. He now had full control of the vapor and can do with it as he saw fit. And in December, at the annual meeting of stockholders, they stated that at last the problems were solved and a final product would soon be on the market. A year later, and five years later, and ten years later, they were still waiting. By the end of 1881, Keeley Motor Company was on the brink of bankruptcy again. Keeley still refused to patent the devices he claimed were earth-shattering, and the Keeley Motor Company refused to pay his bills. Keeley sought and received secret financial backing from outside sources, including $10,000 from Dr. William Pepper, provost of the University of Pennsylvania, founder of the Wharton School of Business, and co-founder of the Philadelphia Public Library. Pepper is interred under a modest stone in Section J of Laurel Hill Cemetery. When bankruptcy and starvation seemed imminent, Clara Sophia Jessup Bloomfield Moore, a Philadelphia heiress to a paper manufacturing fortune, came to his rescue. Clara was also deeply involved in spiritualism and equated Keeley's discovery of etheric force to a communication with the spiritual world. She wrote extensively on the topic and supported him and his work for the next 15 years. Through Clara, Keeley came to the attention of Madame Helena Blavatsky and her theory of theosophy. There are several Blavatsky connections at Laurel Hill Cemetery. I may try to do a podcast on mediums and the occult at some time in the future. But Blavatsky was on the board of Keeley Motor Company and completely impressed by Keeley's discoveries. In her 1888 magnum opus, The Secret Doctrine, The Synthesis of Science, Religion, and Philosophy, she spent a lot of time on Keeley. Every student of occultism knows that sound is one of the most formidable of occult powers. 
Mr. Keeley is on the threshold of one of the greatest secrets of the universe, a secret upon which depends the whole mystery of physical forces. When men like Mr. Keeley are born, endowed with special mental powers, they become martyrs of their discoveries, or victims of less scrupulous speculations. The discovery of Mr. Keeley comes before its proper time. It will never truly take its place in the cyclic evolution of humanity until the threatening tide of capitalistic monopoly shall have ebbed. When such a thing as unjustly paid labor exists, and only when the cry of famine ceases to be heard in the world, then the discovery of Mr. Keeley ceases to be an anachronism, because then the poor will have more use for it than the rich. The Keeley Motor Company was at the end of its tether. It had nothing to show for all of its investments, and Keeley was shifting gears again, totally abandoning disintegration research and now concentrating on vibratory energy. Keeley claimed that the Keeley Motor Company has not rights or interest at all in his new inventions. The company sued its namesake. The suit was dismissed. Another lawsuit in 1883 led a judge to order Keeley to, quote, make known his process in the way indicated in the bill filed by the Keeley Motor Company. This is to compel him to divulge the secret of the motor. Again, Keeley refused. In the meantime, people who lived in the neighborhood near Keeley's 20th Street workshop were often startled by the sounds of terrific explosions in the building. Skeptics of the inventor said that he exploded large quantities of gunpowder now and then just for the sake of effect. Somehow, Keeley fended off his board of directors and stockholders for several more years with occasional demonstrations and a promise that the final engine would be finished in just a short time or a few weeks or another month or so. In September 1884, he demonstrated a Vaporic gun at Sandy Hook, New Jersey, which failed to impress armaments expert Lieutenant E.L. Zelinsky, who had earlier developed the pneumatic dynamite torpedo gun. Zelinsky witnessed the demonstration and said everything could be explained by compressed air. Zelinsky attended another demonstration at Keeley's workshop two months later. Keeley claimed to have achieved pressures of 50,000 PSI and had broken all of his pressure gauges. Zelinsky produced a pressure gauge that he brought with him. His was capable of registering 10,000 PSI. He gave it to Keeley and said, I would like to have you put it on and break it for me. Keeley sputtered for a few moments before declining the challenge, saying, I do not believe in pressure gauges anyhow. In 1886, he told the New York Times that by laying little tubes connected to his engine underground, he could run all the machinery in every factory in Philadelphia simply by drawing his violin bow once every morning, allowing the sound to enter into the copper globe of his machinery. Finally, in 1888, John Keeley went to jail. 
but not for defrauding stockholders. His old boss in the varnishing business, Bennett C. Wilson, reappeared. He claimed that he had sponsored Keeley's first machine some 22 years earlier. He fell for the same claim that his marvelous device would soon be ready for sale and change the world. Wilson alleged that assignments made to him by Keeley for further financial support entitled him to all the patents that Keeley had taken out for the perfection of his motor. Of course, Keeley had never patented anything. A blue ribbon committee was formed in order to inspect Keeley's equipment to see if it still represented what he had invented when being financed by Wilson. Keeley refused to allow the inspection, and in November 1888, he was sent to Moyamensing Prison for contempt of court. He was released less than two weeks later. Keeley went back to his tinkering. Clara Bloomfield Moore tried to supply some validation for his work by getting Thomas Edison and Nikola Tesla to examine his mechanisms. They declined. Keeley even managed to squeeze a few thousand dollars more out of New York capitalist John Jacob Astor IV. No functioning vaporic or vibratory engine was ever patented by John Keeley in his 30 plus years of inventions. Keeley died at his home in Philadelphia on 18 November 1898. According to his death certificate, he was 62 years old. His coffin had an engraved plaque on it that misspelled his middle name as Warall, W-O-R-R-A-L-L, rather than E-L-L. Three weeks later, at the annual stockholders' meeting, Keeley's widow's attorney gave the news that Keeley's secret did not exist in manuscript form and that the details of all of his inventions went to the grave with him. A month later, Clara Bloomfield Moore's son Clarence, who was an electrical engineer, invaded Keeley's workshop and started tearing it apart under the watchful eye of a local newspaper, the Philadelphia Press. Behind a brick wall, they found mechanical belts linked to a silent water motor two floors below the laboratory. In the basement was a three-ton sphere of compressed air that had run the machines through hidden high-pressure tubes and switches. The walls, the ceilings, and even solid beams were found to have concealed tubes. Journalists documented everything with their cameras. Keeley was interred at West Laurel Hill Cemetery, River Section, Plot 313. One close friend reported that he had once asked him, John, what do you want for an epitaph? His answer? Keeley, the greatest humbug of the 19th century. Instead, he got an unmarked grave for nearly a century. Clara Bloomfield Moore followed him in death only a few months later. Some say from grief. She's buried with her family at Woodlands Cemetery. But Keeley's ideas have never disappeared. In many minds, they have never been disproven. Go to Google, enter sympathetic vibratory physics. Then go to www.svpwiki.com. This is a very active group. 
The SVP wiki is comprised of three main foci. One, Keeley's science of mind, scalar forces, and philosophy. Two, science and philosophy of others that supports or validates this higher science. Three, methods to excite and awaken one's higher mind functions because Keeley's science cannot be grasped sick by the intellect alone. At this site, there are dozens, if not hundreds, of documents, testimonials, photographs, illustrations, newspaper articles, and discussions. You can very easily get lost in all the descriptions of Keeley's marvelous inventions. In 1997, the president of Sympathetic Vibratory Physics contacted West Laurel Hill Cemetery about having a stone placed at the site of Keeley's interment 99 years after his death. What you see today, if you visit the plot, is a simple, small ground stone that simply says John Worrell Keeley, 1827-1898. His admirers have chosen to take the earlier birth date, which I think is probably more accurate. However, the word humbug is nowhere to be seen. In 2013, science writer Donald E. Semenek put it far better than I could. It is not pathological to admit that science is never complete and that new discoveries will be made and will at least modify some of our present understanding. However, it is just a bit perverse to justify one's scientific thinking by basing it on the vague and incomprehensible invented pseudoscientific theories and experimental deceptions of a 19th century charlatan such as Keeley. Keeley may have been a clever con artist, or he may have been a diligent but misguided seeker of scientific truth who only fabricated deceptions to gain support. He may have been both. Whatever may be the case, I confidently predict that if new sources of energy are ever discovered, they will have not the slightest connection with anything Keeley ever did or imagined. Present-day followers and admirers of Keeley are wasting their time and will simply get nowhere as they try to implement his ideas to produce an energy generator. End quote. Next time in the August 2021 edition of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories number 29, The Olympians. As I record this in June, the 2020 Olympics are scheduled to take place in Tokyo from 23 July to 8 August 2021. Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are the final resting places for at least seven Olympians and one near-Olympian from the 1900 Games in Paris to the 1932 Games in Los Angeles. Rowing, golf, track and field events are all represented among our permanent residents. We will relive those early days celebrating the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat in the next episode of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, The Olympians.
Laurel Hill Cemetery is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It's within an easy walk from the bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny for SEPTA buses R1 and 61. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Balakinwood, with parking available at the main entrance and at the bell tower. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. from April to October, and from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. November through March. We welcome dog walkers, bike riders, photographers, bird watchers, nature buffs, and strollers both the two-footed and the four-wheeled variety. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open for historic tours again, but with a limited number of participants. We will still have pay-what-you-wish virtual tours via Zoom. Find out more at thelaurelhillcemetery.org or westlaurelhill.com. Here's more to satisfy your curiosity, laurelhillcemetery.blog, where you can read about even more interesting people. And if you follow us on Instagram, you'll get a daily reminder of our inhabitants and activities. And if that's not enough, check out the virtual tours I've done on YouTube. Laurel Hill Cemetery Hotspots and Storied Plots Virtual Tour Number 1 gives you an overview. And All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories video podcast number one is on illustrator A.B. Frost and his family. Podcast number 22 on ornithologists and entomologists is also available as a video podcast on YouTube. I am scheduled to do another virtual hotspots tour on Wednesday, 21 July. I think it's at 6 p.m. You can sign up for free or whatever you wish to pay at the Laurel Hill Cemetery website. I promise you there will be several people you have not heard about on the podcast. Once you have fallen in love with these hotspots, become a friend of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemetery. And you will have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year, plus something special. There's a podcast for members only on Frederick Brown, one of the founders of the cemetery, and his remarkable family. Become a member to find out more. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I'm Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University, reminding you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. You can contact me at my email address, joe at joelex.net. I also invite you to listen to the radio show that I do for WPPM-FM in Philadelphia every Tuesday afternoon at 2 p.m. East Coast time. I go back 60 years. I read you some news stories while also playing jazz that was recorded that week. You can stream it from phillycam.org slash listen or from my website, joelex.xyz. I'm also going to promote another podcast for fans of Philadelphia history. It's called Adventures in Theater History, Philadelphia. There's a new episode every other Friday. Check it out. I think you'll like it. Stick around if you want to hear the references that I use for this podcast. And believe me, there were plenty of them. So until next time we meet, stay safe, stay well.
Samuel George Morton has been in the news a lot lately, especially around Philadelphia. My primary references for the podcast were an essay called The Life of Samuel George Morton. That's from the Penn Museum website. A biographical memoir of Samuel George Morton, M.D., prepared by appointment of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia, by George Bacon Wood, M.D., read before that body on 3 November, 1852. George Bacon Wood is another prominent Philadelphia physician, naturally buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery. I'll try to include him in a future podcast. Louis Menand, M-E-N-A-N-D, Morton, Agassiz, and the Origins of Scientific Racism in the United States. That's from the Journal of Blacks in Higher Education, number 34. Winter 2001-2002, pages 110 to 113. Emily S. Rentschler and Janet M. Mong, The Crania of African Origin in the Samuel G. Morton Cranial Collection. That was published by the South African Archaeological Society, December 2013, pages 35 through 38. Stephen J. Gould, The Mismeasure of Man, W.W. Norton and Company, 1981, has a long chapter on Morton. And, of course, Crania Americana, or A Comparative View of the Skulls of Various Aboriginal Nations of North and South America by Samuel George Morton, M.D., J. Dobson, Chestnut Street, Philadelphia, 1839. For George Robbins Glidden, Susan Branson, Barnum is Undone in His Own Province, Science, Race, and Entertainment in the Lectures of George Robbins, which is misspelled, Glidden. It's spelled with one B. There should be two Bs. This is Chapter 7 from the book The Cosmopolitan Lyceum, Lecture, Culture, and the Globe in 19th Century America. It's edited by Tom F. Wright in 2013. Cassandra Vivian, George Glidden in America, The Awakening of Egyptomania. That is from her book, Americans in Egypt, 1770 to 1915. Explorers, consuls, travelers, soldiers, missionaries, writers, and scientists. That was 2012. My personal favorite is kind of hard to find. It's by William Stanton. It's called The Leopard's Spots, Scientific Attitude Toward Race in America, 1815 to 1859. It's the University of Chicago Press, 1960. And Fabian, The Skull Collectors, Race, Science, and America's Unburied Dead. That's the University of Chicago Press, 2010. Also, S.J. Wolf, Bringing Egypt to America, George Glidden and the Panorama of the Nile, from the Journal of Ancient Egyptian Interconnections, Volume 8, Number 1, 2016, pages 1 through 20. And finally, a doctoral thesis from 2007 by Carly Henderson, The Face of the Mummy, The Social Impact of Mummies, which is misspelled, it's spelled M-U-M-M-Y apostrophe S, uh, and Mummy Unrollings in the 19th Century. You can find it online, though. Carly with an E at the end, C-A-R-L-E-Y Henderson, The Face of the Mummy. For John Ernst Worrell Keeley, another embarrassment of riches. Earliest is an unknown author. It's called John Keeley and His Motor. It's from a publication, I'm not making this up, called The Locomotive Fireman's Magazine, volume 26, number 1, January 1899, 
pages 11 through 16. It's really good. Highly recommended Robert McDougall, Sympathetic Physics, the Keeley Motor, and the Laws of Thermodynamics in 19th Century Culture. That's from Technology and Culture, Volume 60, Number 2, April 2019, pages 438 to 466. I've been in touch with McDougall, and he is planning to write a full book about Keeley and his invention and his relationship with Clara Bloomfield Moore. Speaking of which, Clara Sophia Jessup Bloomfield Moore wrote Keeley and His Discoveries in 1893. The most comprehensive book so far, I think, has been by Theo Peijmans, P-A-I-J-M-A-N-S. It's called Free Energy Pioneer John Worrell Keeley, Adventures Unlimited Press, 2004. I looked at numerous newspaper articles, probably a couple of dozen from when Keeley was in his heyday. And then there's the entire website, svpwiki.com, which tells you everything you need to know about sympathetic vibratory physics. See you next time. Stay safe. Stay well.